Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two. One, two. One, two. For you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses Who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes So clever we behold his endeavors unfold The greatest story ever told The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we got to see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology.
fact that this is a narrow gate requires repentance. It requires leaving your baggage behind. It requires leaving behind the love of sin and the love of the world and love of self. And Jesus said, if any man shall come after me, he must deny himself and take up a cross and follow after me. There is no way to come through this narrow gate except you strip down and strip away all self-sufficiency and all self-righteousness and you humble yourself and you come as a little child into the kingdom of heaven and it is a narrow gate whereby you can only come one at a time. You can't come in a group. You're going to have to peel off from the group. You're going to have to break from the pack. You're going to have to break even from your family and come one at a time. All right, folks, welcome to the matter. It's a little bit of technical difficulties there, but we got it worked out. So thank you for joining us this week. We've got a, got a big show for you guys. We're going to be... Uh, Having a good friend uh, John Vito on, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the contrasting differences between uh, Mormonism and Christianity. And we know, you know, Mormonism claims to uh, to be Christianity, but we're going to examine their uh, teachings in the light of Scripture. And John DeVito, he's a he's a good guy, sharp guy. He'll be on with us to kind of help. Uh, navigate us through some of those questions. So I hope you guys stay tuned for that. Uh, yes, we'll just go ahead and jump right into it today. I, I found a clip uh, as I was kind of going through some stuff from Todd Friel. It's uh, the Way of the Master, and and uh, he does a, a show on on television every night called Wretched. And this is one of the clips that had uh, been played. Yeah, I thought this really does have a lot. um, It kind of gives us a glimpse, I think, where we're at in American Christianity and kind of the pop culture, uh, how we see uh, the Bible, how we see how we see even God. So I wanted to play this clip uh, of this particular girl and what's just for a little background, speaking kind of to a group of people in an open-air setting, and he's giving the gospel. And if you guys are familiar at all with uh, with the way of the master, uh, they they definitely bring the law into it, um, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, um, and they... Yes, specifically the Ten Commandments. Um, And they specifically run people down through uh, the different commandments, like have you lied, have you uh, stolen, have you, you know, committed adultery, these types of things. And the point of it is to get the people to understand that they have broken God's law, that they're sinners, that they need Christ as a Savior. Without the recognition of that, then... Uh, preaching the gospel really loses all of its teeth. You know, if you don't need to be, you know, if you don't need a savior, then you don't need to be saved from anybody. So anyway, this uh, this young lady, uh, as we'll hear, kind of confronts Todd. And, um, you know, I want to be careful with this because I think her intentions 
uh, are not evil or wrong or anything like that. Uh, but I definitely think her 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 views are are definitely wrong. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and play that clip, and then when it when it's it's about five six minutes, and then when it's done, we'll come back and kind of break that down. Well, with whom do you agree? Talk about it here or call our toll-free beep talk number. Leave a message and we'll play it on Wretched Radio. Just for a minute. Sure, you can. Oh, come on up, madam. You can, you can express that. That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. You can share your heart. Go ahead. You think that it's the wrong way to do it? I grew up in the church like yeah. since I was really little, and I think that what you're saying about one God and a loving God and going to heaven, I think that, that that's all probably true. But I bet that 99% of the people out here are getting so frustrated with you and so upset with you and so angry at God because of you. They're already angry at God. The Bible says they're haters of God. You're breaking my heart because I don't think that you're portraying the kind of God that people need and the kind of God that is real. What kind of God do people need? People need the kind of God who offers forgiveness and love. And I think that you're offering... Judgment? Is God going to judge people? Of course he is. Oh, whoa, 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 wait a but, second. But you're not. I'm not judging them. I'm asking it questions. Sure, it sure seems like, can I just say something without you interrupting me? Mm-hmm. I am just, listen to this, I'm just so near tears and my heart is beating so fast yeah. because I think that you're doing the opposite of what you're wanting to do. Hmm. And that's so just when, breaking my heart so because I, 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 think, I think that you and I probably believe the same thing, but what you need to do is go out into the world and live your message. And people will come to Jesus. It's not about debating with them and proving them wrong and yeah. telling them that they're bad people. Do you think they are wrong? So you're breaking you my heart. Can I talk now? No. Can I talk now? No. Yeah. Do you think they're wrong if they don't believe in Jesus? I do. And do you think that if they die in their sins without Jesus Christ, where do you think they'll go? I think they'll go to hell. And you don't care enough to tell them now? Of course I do. Then why don't you? I do, but I do it through my life. I do it the way that Jesus did it, not the way that you did it. Jesus didn't ever preach? Huh? Jesus didn't ever preach? Of course he preached, but he didn't didn't debate. You're right, because they just sat and listened because he was a rabbi. Have you ever heard the Sermon on the Mount? Of course I have. Jesus said, you've heard it said of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say, if you look with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. He wasn't being friends. He wasn't living his life. He was proclaiming, you must repent. Jeremiah did it. Isaiah did it. John the Baptist did it. Jesus did it. Paul did it. Peter did it. Everybody throughout the course of history has done that because we're so concerned they're going to die tonight. Somebody from this fair might drive home tonight and die. And I don't want them to go to hell. I don't have time to be friends with everybody, but we do have time to preach to everybody. Do you preach to people and help them see their plight? I try to live just like Jesus. It's not going to help them. Yes, it is. The Bible says, how will they know if nobody preaches to them? It's Romans 10. And how will somebody preach to them unless they don't get sent? My point is that you're wasting your time because 99% you know? of the and people... How And it's irrelevant. Who, who is so angry with him? Okay. You know what? It doesn't matter. That's pragmatism. The question is, what are we commanded to go and do? And we are go- called to go and preach the gospel and of repentance. And live it. Are you saying I don't live it? No, I'm not saying that you don't live okay, it. Okay, I live it, and I'm here proclaiming it because these people need to hear the good news of salvation. But they won't hear the good news until they understand the bad news. It's like a doctor who would go out into the street and befriend people because he actually knows that they have cancer but never tells them and hopes to one day lure them into the hospital. We want to go out and say, you've got a disease, you've got an illness. A doctor who never tells the patient he's sick is not a good doctor. How, many, how, how long have you been doing this? 
It's really irrelevant, and I'll tell no, you what else not. is irrelevant. How many people have been saved by it? That's what I'm wondering. It's irrelevant. No, the it's question not. is, what is right? So you would, if somebody was in a burning building, you would just befriend them. You wouldn't call out to them, get out, the house is on fire. You wouldn't do that for them? No, that's not what you're doing. What you're doing is saying, you're in a house that's burning down. Exactly. That's what you're doing. Exactly, they are. That's all you're doing. That doesn't do any good either. Have you not heard me preach the cross? Have you not heard me talk about Jesus Christ, the kind God dying I to don't save people from their I, maybe sin? Maybe I haven't been here long enough, but it doesn't seem like you've gotten that far because you're all about the judgment. You're right, because these, the fellow that I was talking to is self-righteous, and he thinks he's a good person. I'm trying to plead with him. You're not good. See yourself the way the law shows you that you are in your true state. The law was given to hold up to people as a mirror so that they could see themselves the way God sees them. How does God see the people who are lawbreakers? He loves them. He does, but he's also angry at them. You're right. And he demonstrated his... The Bible says that God's wrath abides upon humankind, that we are enemies of God in our mind through wicked works. We're, and his cup of wrath is filling up drip by drip, and on the day of judgment, he's going to pour it out and people will go to hell. Don't you want to warn them now? I'm just, I'm not a fire and brimstone kind of person. I'm not either. It sounds like it. Is there fire and brimstone? And you're not kind enough to tell them about it? You're not kind enough to warn them about it? See, now you're judging me. I'm asking you a question. <laughs> sort of like you were judging me a moment ago. Okay? It's just, it's just, it's just that it breaks my heart. All right, we'll go ahead and, and stop it there, but. As you see, that's kind of a kind of an emotional scene there, and uh, it's not my not my intention to pick on this young lady here. She's she's in tears and she's upset and she's uh, she thinks she thinks what's happening is is she thinks Todd Friel is actually hurting uh, the message of the cross and hurting the message of the gospel. And it's it's just built on several fundamental errors, and uh, it's just kind of how the churches in, in America, particularly, um, teach people to think. And so that's you know she's a product of that. She's a product of what uh, she's been been raised with, and um, it's just got several areas of, of problems. Um, she complains about teaching the judgment of God. She's very uh, angry about this, very hard on this. Uh, they don't need a God of judgment. They need a God of love. Well, we have to teach the whole the whole picture. We have to teach the whole uh, word of God, the whole attributes of God. And while it is true God is, is loving, God is also holy and God is just and God is angry with the wicked every day, according to the scripture. See, what's happening is we're sending people out to go do evangelism and <clears throat> the people are going and telling uh, the people that they say, you know, come to Jesus, Jesus loves you, you need to be saved. But the problem is they don't want to tell them what they need to be saved from. And what is it that they need to be saved from? Well, they need to be saved from God's wrath, God's anger, the punishment of sin. It makes no sense to go and uh, proselytize and evangelize and tell people that they need to come to Jesus and they need to be saved, but never tell them why they need to come to Jesus or uh, what it is that they need to be saved from. One of the things that you hear kind of repeatedly 
through this was she kept saying, um, my life lives the message. I live the, the gospel. I live the message. problem with this is that uh, the Bible doesn't tell us to only uh, let people see life and that is enough to uh, preach the gospel. The gospel is made of certain propositions that must be believed. That man is sinful. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus died uh, in your place on the cross. Confess him as Lord. These are certain things that uh, people have to assent to and believe in, right? It's not just, wow, this, you know, so-and-so lives a moral life. You know, we're doing our show on Mormonism tonight. We'll see. There's a lot of, of, of good Mormon people. When I say good, of course, I mean relatively is human speaking. Uh, the Bible says no one is good, Romans 3, 10 through 12. No, nobody's good. There is no good people because we've all broken God's law. But I lived in Utah for 23 years, and uh, our family came out of Mormonism. And I can tell you, they are sweet people. They are very nice people. And uh, I have friends that are Mormons, and, uh, you know, it's it's if you're looking for good people, there's plenty of groups. You've got good Jehovah's, Jehovah's Witnesses that are good friends that are, you know, really nice people, Right. But that, uh, living their life, that, that doesn't tell you what the gospel is. It doesn't tell you what you need to be saved from. It doesn't tell you who Jesus is. It doesn't, it doesn't tell you these things. And so Todd was absolutely right to bring out these, you know, the scriptures of how will they hear unless one goes and preaches. So there are propositional truths that must be believed and trusted in. Uh, it's not just simply uh, living a nice life. She says, oh, it's not about debating. We're not here to debate. Well, what's wrong with debate? What's wrong with debating? Debating gives sharper ideas. It kind of it kind of moves away some of the fluff, some of the some of the cloudiness, and gets down to where the rubber meets the road. And we're told in First Peter three fifteen, be ready always to give an answer to everyone who asks for a reason of the hope that's within you. We're told in 2 Corinthians 10.5 to demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Uh, I think it was in Galatians chapter, I want to say 1, Paul uh, 1.16, Paul says he was set here for defense of the gospel. So there's nothing wrong with debating. Sometimes people think uh, when you hear, you know, arguments for Christianity, they confuse that with with arguing, right? We're not talking about bickering. We're not talking about, you know, name-calling, this type of stuff. We're talking about rational dialogue, giving good arguments for Christianity. One of the things that uh, you hear bring up is – challenging him with, well, how many people have been saved through your method? <clears throat> Folks, this right here I think is the, the absolute crux of the problem with American uh, Christianity. They don't believe that it's the power of the gospel that saves. They don't believe that it's, it's uh, that, that, that the power, that the saving power is in the gospel. They believe it's in our method and what we say and what we do and how we can lure them in. But the Bible doesn't tell us to do that. 
It just tells us to preach the word. Romans 1, 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation. The power doesn't lie with me. The power doesn't lie with my uh, slick words or, um, you know, $5 million uh, cool state-of-the-art, uh, you know, sound system and visual system. Doesn't lie with me giving away prizes and dirt bikes for you know people coming to church and stickers and t-shirts and all the other nonsense. Power of God is it's in the gospel, and we should be thankful for that. That's where we should want it. We don't want it in us. We can't save ourselves. How are we going to save others? So the idea of, uh, well, you know, you shouldn't do it because there's not a lot of people, you know, and maybe a lot of people are not going to get saved. Well, maybe not. Salvation is of the Lord, right? Salvation is of the Lord. It's not my job to edit the message. It's not my job to change the message. My job is to deliver the message and let the chips fall where they may. She goes on to uh, that uh, again. She goes on to uh, kind of appeal again to her life and how she lives and this type of thing. And I just I want to go back to this just just for another moment here. One of the problems that I've seen is when we're on the street, we're doing evangelism, or we're with coworkers, you know, wherever the situation is, and we're wanting to talk about the gospel, and we're wanting to. Uh, introduce them to the God of the Bible. Uh, we start out with with uh, with the good news. What's the good news? Well, Jesus died for your sins. If you believe in Jesus, you can go to heaven. And when we do that, we're not telling the whole story. Is it true that Jesus died for your sins? Well, yeah. Is it true if you put your faith and your trust in him that you go to heaven? Yeah. But what we're not telling them is, is uh, first of all, why? Why do we need a savior? What do we need to be saved? What do we need to be saved from? So you have to tell them the bad news before we jump right into the good news. Because if you don't tell them the bad news, the good news doesn't make sense. What's the bad news? Well, the bad news is we all fell on Adam. Romans five twelve through through fourteen, First Corinthians uh, fifteen twenty one and so on. We fell in Adam. And because of that, as Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, we are children of wrath. And God's wrath abides upon us. And that is why we need a Savior. That's why we need uh, the blood of Christ, which washes us from our sins. And so when we're not telling them the the whole truth, when we're not uh, telling them that the reason you need to come to Christ, the reason you need uh, the good news is because of the bad news, then we're just we're simply not telling them the whole story. And we want to make sure that, that we're doing that. And then, you know, in that dialogue, she, she even says, you know, when Todd Friel asks her, what happens if the people don't accept Christ, if they don't repent, if they don't trust him and embrace him as, as Lord and Master? What happens? Do they go to heaven or do they go to hell? And she says, oh, they go to hell. And he rightly asks them, then why why wouldn't you tell them that? 
Why would we be silent about that? There's a clip with uh, a well-known atheist, uh, Penn and Teller. I'm not sure if you guys have ever seen their show or not, but they're pretty well-known magicians. They go around and they do different uh, different magic shows. And um, there was one particular um, video that's on YouTube uh, where I believe the guy's name is, is Penn, um, is talking about a show he did. And um, he said after the show, and I, I should probably play it. I need to I need to get that downloaded and, and go ahead and put it on our show. But he says during that show, afterwards, there was a, a guy there who uh, was a fan, came up, wanted to meet him and, and shake his hand and talk with him a little bit. And uh, he said that uh, the guy handed him a Gideon's New Testament. It had the I think the New Testament and the Psalms in it. And um, he he was just taken back at how this guy's demeanor was. That the, he said he could he could tell genuinely that this guy really cared for him. And he said, you know, he wasn't this guy that had a lot of money, and he wasn't you know of stature or notoriety. He said, but he could tell that that guy genuinely cared for him. And so uh, he went on to say, he said, you know, uh, there's there's several atheists, uh, friends of mine who will say, uh, you know, we we don't like it when Christians uh, proselytize or evangelize. And Penn goes on to say that if you are really a believer and you are really a Christian, uh, then you should proselytize. You should evangelize. He goes on to say, how much would you have to hate a person, right, to truly believe in the God of the Bible, to truly believe what the Bible's message is, that those who don't repent and turn to Christ will be in hell for eternity? How much do you have to hate a person to not tell them the truth? And that's really what we got to think of, folks. It's not just... Um, you know, part of the problem is she keeps talking about, you know, well, he, he's not being loving when he's giving the gospel. Love is good for the other person. If I love my neighbor, and we're commanded to, by the way, if I love my neighbor, then I'm not going to just walk by while his house is on fire. If I truly love my neighbor, I'm going to risk everything to save him. And if I truly love my neighbor, I'm going to give him the gospel whether it means uh, I lose my reputation or wonder what he thinks of me or whatever. Uh, you know, that's not important. What's important is, you know, getting him out of the immediate danger. So just think about this. You know, as you're at work maybe this week or the next week and you have an opportunity to share the gospel, that uh, the bad news has to come before the good news because if you don't give the bad news... First, and what's the bad news? All men fall one in Adam, because Adam is our federal head. Secondly, we we sin individually. And, uh, you know, the scripture says, if you were to mark our iniquities against us, who can stand? And obviously the answer is no one. So we have to give, we have to give the bad news before we give the good news so the good news makes sense. And we have to give the whole whole truth and nothing but the truth. So with that being said, we got
and we're going to uh, go ahead and transition our show. We're going to look at uh, Mormonism tonight, and we're going to look at several uh, key aspects of their teaching. We're going to look at the origin of Mormonism, uh, their view of God, their view of soteriology, and uh, some other stuff. So what we'll do is we'll take a break for one minute, and then we will come back and we will have our guest on the air with us. So don't go away. You're listening to the Ankerberg Minute with apologist and best-selling author Dr. John Ankerberg. In today's postmodern culture, people increasingly ask, does absolute truth exist? Some claim our beliefs and values are purely subjective, based on no absolute moral authority. But is this what the Bible communicates? Certainly not. The Bible declares that God's words are absolutely true. The psalmist wrote that the laws of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The Apostle Paul noted that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. While today's skeptics may question whether truth exists, God has provided a clear response for those seeking a perfect standard on which to base their life. Allow God's perfect truth to refine your heart and life today. For additional resources on this topic, log on to johnankerberg.org. All right, welcome back to Theology Matters, and I just wanted to let people know uh, my wife is actually watching our baby girl tonight, so that's, she hasn't been with us for a while, you know, we uh, we had our had our baby, and so, you know, she uh, has to be kind of with her during the show, but we're, we're going to maybe work on, on maybe getting a babysitter and getting her back on the show, because I know she misses it, and uh, you can hear her on Fridays on this same network on Pro-Life Fridays, where they deal with, um, it's a whole two-hour show or hour-and-a-half show, uh, where they specifically deal with the issues of abortion. And, you know, folks, this really is one of the biggest issues of the day. And uh, we really need to be aware of how to answer a lot of those um, questions that come up and be able to offer help to so many of those uh, young ladies and young fathers that are in that situation. So uh, that is from 6 to 7.30 on Fridays on the same network. So be sure to check her out there. All right. Well, our guest is uh, Mr. John DeVito. And I actually, I first met him uh, probably five years ago or so. Uh, it was at a... And uh, we were actually meeting in our in the, the seminary I go to, Southern Evangelical Seminary. We were meeting in their building. And he had came with uh, another gentleman, uh, Mr. Paul Carden, who was uh, another expert on, on cults. And I uh, really enjoyed their, their talks. I never uh, – the, the particular message was on missions. And normally, you know, I was growing up in the – have the priests come in and they talk about, you know, building houses and feeding people. And, and that's, you know, I'm not knocking that. But what really struck me uh, with these guys was coming in and talking about how, uh, I believe it was uh, witnesses or a break-off group they were, where they were at that uh, there were so many of them there and they were training the pastors uh, how to deal with, with, uh, with that. So I was really impressed. But uh, John DeVito is a former Mormon. 
He is a graduate of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, currently serves as the administrator for the Midwest Center of Theological Studies in Owensboro, Kentucky. He also serves as a deacon at Heritage Baptist Church, and John is married to his wife, Jennifer, and they have four children, Anne, Joshua, and Joy. So, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Thank you for having me. Man, it's great to great to have you again. Good to, good to talk to you again. <laughs> yes, it's been too long. Yeah. Did I leave anything out of that introduction? Uh, you know, not that I can think about. I, I do remember visiting uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary and and meeting you. Uh, at, at that time, you're right. We were really focusing on something I think is overlooked so often in missions for evangelicals. Missions either tends to be seen in terms of pioneer evangelism, you know, where you're you're going to reach the unreached, and 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 obviously that is absolutely critical and crucial to missions. Uh, but but a lot of people tend to end missions uh, with conversion or possibly with the Bible being translated into an indigenous language. Uh, but but what we really see in the Great Commission is Jesus saying, uh, you know, go and make disciples, and that includes teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, and so really that leads to church planting, that leads to a certain level of maturity among believers, uh, you know, where they where they not only have the word of God, but they understand the truths that God has revealed and, and can be able to counter the errors that they will uh, inevitably run into uh, around the world. And so I, I, I love the, the ministry of uh, the, the Centers for Apologetics Research, which I was serving through, and um, still continue to believe in it. So, uh, you know, we, we continue to see wonderful things happening. As, as I think there's a growing awareness of the need for apologetics and defending the faith around the world. What is uh, what are you guys currently doing with uh, the Midwest Center for Theological Studies? What what is uh, what do you guys do there? Sure, the, the actually the Midwest Center for Theological Studies is a uh, essentially a church-based seminary here in Owensboro, Kentucky. Uh, it it really was begun uh, with our current academic dean, Dr. Sam Waldron, and one of the pastors of the church I belong to, uh, Pastor Ted Christman, that got together to really see the, the need to bring together uh, the, the scholastic rigor of uh, a traditional academic seminary together with preparing men for the ministry through uh, local church ministry and mentoring. So that that was really the genesis or the birth of, of our school, which, which is trying to bring together uh, those two areas here in uh, Western Kentucky, and uh, so the Lord has been blessing us in many ways. But I'm I'm the administrator, so I'm more than one behind the scenes here, uh, you know, doing everything from uh, taking care of paperwork to um, you know various uh, student uh, assisting students and just whatever else needs to be done. So wonderful. Well, so that so that you get out there. Um, so. Mm. So you said you were a former Mormon. Maybe we could we could talk about that a little bit. Your your uh, how you were brought up and and uh, why you left the Mormon Church. Sure. 
Well, I, as I said, I, I was actually uh, born into the Mormon Church. Uh, both of my parents were uh, first-generation converts, so they, they converted to Mormonism. Uh, you know, at, at some point, I, I forget exactly when, but before they were married, uh, to the point where they were married as Mormons in the LDS Temple and, and, and sealed. Uh, so by the time I was born, uh, you know, it was life as a Mormon in the LDS Church. So uh, I, I had a pretty typical childhood growing up, uh, going to the various meetings, um, and and again, with, without getting into the theology or the doctrine behind it, I was baptized at the age of eight. Uh, I received the Aaronic Priesthood when I turned 12. I had a, my patriarchal blessing as a younger teen, uh, going up through, you know, a typical uh, Mormon youth for, for a male. And and so that, that was pretty much the way it worked. Uh, but Really, in high school, like many youth do, I got more interested in the things of the world. I started working and, and maybe not going to church consistently. And, and so, really, by the time I turned 18, uh, I had a big decision to make. Because, of course, if you're raised in the church, uh, you're raised to go on your two-year mission, right? If, if you're a temple-worthy Mormon male, I mean, it's generally expected that you're going to... Um, go out and, and proselytize or uh, evangelize or bear witness of the, the Mormon gospel. And right. but, but again, by that point, I really didn't care. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I just, I was more of a Mormon agnostic at that point. I, I didn't deny Mormonism. I, I just thought, you know, I was more interested in, you know, trying to get a good job and, and meet girls and, you know, uh, that, live my life. So, uh, I, I upset my parents in many ways by deciding not to go on my mission and uh, going off to college. Uh, and so there, again, at that point, I was more of an agnostic. Um, and and that's where God began to, I think, really work in my life because uh, he brought me to a woman uh, who's now my wife, and we started seeing each other. Uh, she made a mistake. Uh, when she was getting to know me, she, she was raised Southern Baptist, she was a Christian girl, but she asked me as we were getting to know each other, uh, do you believe in God? And I said, sure. I mean, why not? <laughs> you know, there's some supernatural being out there, fine. Um, but she interpreted that to mean I was a Christian. And that was kind of the green light, you know, to, to start seeing me. I just meant, fine, some supernatural being exists. But still, we quickly fell in love, and that relationship developed. But what happened was really two things. Well, for, first, I uh, came to see how devoted she was to her faith. I mean, she's involved in the campus ministry there at college. She's going to church regularly. Uh, she clearly had a relationship with Christ. And, and that led me uh, to really go, well, you know, I haven't cared about this stuff for a long time. But if she's going to care about this stuff, then she needs to know the fullness of the gospel, right? Because I've been raised my whole life that the fullness of the gospel is found in the one true church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So wow. if she wants to be religious, she needs to know the truth. So I, I, in a sense, I went from being a kind of Mormon agnostic to almost wanting to be a Mormon apologist of sorts, right? But in, in, in order to do that, 
I realized I was going to have to start reading what uh, evangelicals and others were saying against Mormonism so I could refute it and, and uh, you know, show her that Mormonism is true. And so God used this to uh, first uh, engage in study about Mormonism. Uh, and really my studies really focused on uh, the history of Mormonism, uh, the early history of Mormonism, especially with Joseph Smith, as well as um, more about the teaching of Mormonism, the doctrine. And that combined with me going to the campus ministry uh, that she was involved with. Now, uh, there was no spiritual aspect to it. I just wanted to spend more time with this girl I really liked. <laughs> but, you know, the Bible was still being taught. The gospel was still being presented. And God took both of these things, the, the studies that I was doing on Mormonism, uh, which were very fruitful, but bringing me to a very sobering conclusion, which is Mormonism is not true. Uh, Joseph Smith, the founding prophet of Mormonism, is not a true prophet of God. Uh, that that the, the gospel of Mormonism provides no true hope for anybody. Uh, so you have that conclusion coming about through my study of Mormonism, and then you also have the, the true gospel of Christ being presented to me through this campus ministry, and God using both of those things together in my life where at college, uh, at one point, one of the uh, associate ministers there of the campus ministry came to me and just asked where I was at spiritually, and um, I confessed. I said, you know... Uh, I, I don't have any hope in Mormonism. I, I, don't, I know it's not true, uh, but I'm still struggling with the true gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, can it really be all of grace? Is, is, can, we, can it really be that Christ has paid it all? I, it was just so hard for me to process the fact that God would be so loving that he actually substituted himself for me. All of my debt is paid in him and in him I have my I and I have his righteousness. Uh you know, that that I have e eternal life and security in Christ. And and it was too good to be true. And and through but nevertheless through the conversation with this minister I came I I came, well you know, it's it's I'm 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 ready. I'm I'm ready to to commit myself to this Christ. I'm ready to to love the man who redeemed me from my sin and reconciled me to my to God, and so it was through really through that campus ministry and, and through my study and and through the example of of who's now uh, a woman who's now my wife that uh, God saved me and and so that's really how wow. I I came to faith in Christ. Um, that's and, awesome. and so you know over to, yeah over time from there. Uh, I, I quickly grew in my faith. I was starting to read and study the, the Bible and and growing quickly, starting to read books of theology and, and just devouring these things to the point where I eventually decided to go to seminary, uh, continue my studies, and that's really where I picked up um, a lot of my interest in apologetics. You see, for a while, once I left Mormonism, I left Mormonism, right? That was in the rearview mirror. I was done. Uh, so the idea of reaching out to Mormons or dealing with Mormonism, I'm like, no, that, that's, you know, that's the old life. That's the dead John. Um, 
but I came over time as people kept talking to me about it and asking me questions, and and as I continued my studies and matured in my faith, I just came to realize, no, there are so many others who are lost like I was, apart from Christ, even though they claim to believe in Christ. I mean, the name of their church, after all, has Jesus Christ in, in the name. Right. So, so I've, I've come to gain a really a, a heart for Mormons. I still have family members that are temple-worthy active Mormons. Uh, so, so I, you know, God has, has used the years, used my studies, used my maturity to, to desire to reach out more and more to Latter-day Saints with the truth of the gospel. You know, it's funny because I, I actually grew up, uh, spent 20, 23 or 24 years in Utah, actually, and, mm. and uh, my family had actually uh, converted from Mormonism when I was pretty young, so I didn't, uh, I didn't grow up in the Mormon church. Uh, or anything like mm-hmm. that, but yeah, mm-hmm. I'm in the same mm-hmm. boat. I still have uh, cousins and family members uh, in that that are that are still faithful in the LDS Church. And uh, you know what? Let's let me want to make it clear too, because I don't know there's probably going to be a lot of people that either hear this live or are going to get it on the podcast. Uh, John, you you would agree we're not attacking these people personally, right? This isn't we're not trying to assassinate anybody's character. Oh, of course not. As a matter of fact, I would say that uh, many Mormons are some of the most um, moral, uh, loving uh, people, you know, just from a human perspective, that I know. Uh, You know, in my mind, any Latter-day Saint recognizes that when they either uh, become a missionary themselves or when they become a missionary or whether their church, when their church sends out missionaries, the reason they go door to door is not to assassinate the people that they're that they're knocking on the doors of. It's right. rather that they believe they have the truth, and that they that they realize that the eternal, the spiritual uh, future of the people they're seeking to reach depends on those who uh, come to a knowledge of and and believe in these truths. Right, and it's the same way, but in reverse. I, I'm not out um, trying to assassinate anybody or be an anti-Mormon. Uh, I, I'm yeah. one who wants to reach out to Latter-day Saints in love, saying there is a better gospel, a true gospel in Jesus Christ, which will give you real hope. Uh, so it's it's done in love. You know, it, it's and, and I think that's really and that's something we all have to check in our own hearts, honestly, is right. for my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, the reason we do this is not to win debates. It's it's not to, you know, uh, put a notch on our uh, conversion belt. We we do it because there are lost uh, people who um, need to know uh, Christ. And I think that's you know just so incredibly critical for uh, Christians to understand. We we need to to do this out of a heart of love uh, and respect. Yeah, very very well said. It should be our love that compels us to uh, to go out into the highways and byways. Our love for Christ and our and our love for fellow man should definitely compel us. Mm. Oh. Yes. Well, let's do this. Let's. Uh, where do you want to start at? Did you want to maybe start looking? Uh, 
tell us a little bit about the, the origins of, of Mormonism? Or where did you want to Sure. Start? Well, uh, I, I mean, and that's fine. And, you know, really, I, I think the best way to probably begin is that, you know, we're, we recognize that the church has, in a sense, an official history uh, of, uh, you know, of itself. And uh, that's obviously highly controversial with many scholars who are going to uh, question aspects of the history, uh, question the, whether these, these historical events actually took place the way described and some of these kinds of things. But, but you know, I, I think first it's good to just kind of take a step back and just hear the story as Latter-day Saints actually present it. You know, so I, I, when I go over the history... I'm going to try to leave out, we'll see if I'm successful, try to leave out some of the questions, some of the critiques, some of the historical analyses, and, and just begin with kind of a, it, you know, if a Mormon missionary came to your door and you asked them, okay, how, why is there a Mormon church? How did it all begin? You know, in general, this, this would be the kind of story you hear, all right? So it really begins, uh, well, most of the time it began in the year 1820. In the year 1820, you have a family in New York, uh, the Smith family, and there are a bunch of religious revivals going on all over the place. So you have the Baptists and you have the Methodists, you have the Presbyterians, and they're all out preaching, you know, uh, at different things. And uh, the way uh, a young, at the time, a 14-year-old young boy named Joseph Smith describes it is it's it's that there's a lot of confusion because you have the Baptists saying one thing, and you have the Methodists saying another thing, and the Presbyterians saying something else, and and he really gets confused. He doesn't know uh, what to do because uh, you know he wants to uh, belong to the right church, he wants to believe the right things, and uh, so when he's 14 years old, he uh, supposedly turns to the Bible for guidance, and uh, he comes across James 1.5, which says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. And he says, I need wisdom. I need to know what church to join, what, what church to belong to, what to believe here. And so he decides to pray to God about what he should do, uh, believing that God would hear and answer him. So he goes out or to essentially a, a grove or a garden and prays to God. And this led to what Mormons will call the first vision. And, you know, I, I think to be clear, um, I'll actually read from Joseph Smith's own account of this. Uh, so this, this is Joseph Smith's own words. Uh, this Again, he, he argues this happens when he was 14 years old. He, he later writes, After I had retired to the place where I had previously designed to go, having looked around me and finding myself alone, I kneeled down and began to offer up the desires of my heart to God. He goes on, When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages, whose brightness and glory defy all description, standing above me in the air, one of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son, hear him. 
My object in going to inquire of the Lord was to know which of all the sects was right, that I might know which to join. He goes on to say, I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong. And the personage who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight, that those professors were all corrupt, that they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach the doctrines of the commandments of men having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And he continues on. But you see what happens here in this first vision. Uh, God the Father and Jesus Christ appear to, to this young 14-year-old boy, Joseph Smith, saying, you're to join none of these churches. They're all corrupt. Their creeds are an abomination before me. Essentially, the historic Christian church had apostatized from the true faith. And Jesus Christ goes on to say, I'm going to use you to restore the true church that has been lost on the earth. And and so it is through the next several years of this young boy's life as he grows up that God uh, continues to use him. Uh, and so what we see is that God needs to give him lost revelation. And so when Smith is 17 years old, he has a second vision where a heavenly messenger Moroni appears to him, and an angel, and the angel Moroni uh, was the one who buries ancient records of uh, the Hebrew people that came to America um, centuries ago. And again, in, in the same history, Smith himself writes, he said, there was a book deposited, written upon gold plates, giving account of the former inhabitants of this continent and the source from whence they sprang. He also said that the fullness of the everlasting gospel was contained in it, as delivered by the Savior to the ancient inhabitants. Also that there were two stones and silver bows, and these stones fastened to a breastplate constituted what is called the Urim and Thummim, deposited with the plates, and the possession and use of these stones were what constituted seers in ancient or former times, and that God had prepared them for the purpose of translating this book. So the angel eventually reveals to Smith where these golden plates were hidden, and once he's allowed by God to recover these plates, he begins translating them uh, with this uh, Urim and Thummim. Uh, and the result of this translation of these golden plates about the ancient Hebrews who were uh, who had migrated to America, the ancient Americas, is called the Book of Mormon. And so you not only have the Bible as scripture revealed by God, but now you have uh, the Book of Mormon. And, and so what we continue to see is, is with the publication uh, of the Book of Mormon, with this translation and publication, now Smith comes to um, quickly gain converts over time to this his restored church and to the additional revelation that God has given. Uh, and, and so what he begins to teach is that he is a prophet that God will use to give his people new revelation. And so he becomes their leader, their prophet. And and this group continues to grow. Well, over time, uh, as Smith's movement grows, so does opposition against it. And there was increasingly hostile 
relations between Smith's followers and others, and this leads the the growing church uh, to migrate, to move to different places. And so we see uh, the Mormons moving from New York and and eventually going to uh, Missouri, the Independence, Missouri area, uh, for a time. But then you have increasing opposition there in uh, in uh, Missouri to where they many of them relocate up to uh, to Illinois, and you begin having this community developing in Nauvoo, Illinois, where they actually construct the first uh, LDS temple there in Nauvoo, uh, and you continue to have opposition and such to to the point where uh, Smith finds himself jailed in uh, Carthage, Illinois, uh, because of various uh, issues that were going on. And while he's in jail, an armed mob storms the prison to kill Smith. And so he is shot several times, and uh, this leads him to fall out of the window of the Carthage jail to the ground where he died. Uh, and, and so that kind of ends the initial founding prophet of uh, the Mormon Church. Now, this leads to a challenge. Uh, you know, in, in 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 one way, it's not like Smith set up a succession plan, right? Uh, right. He, he didn't say, "This is the one who's going to follow me. This is your next prophet." He he, you know, was. Uh, murdered or, or killed there at the jail. So what do you think happens? Good question. I think... Uh, <laughs> well, start... I, I mean, basically, this, and, and uh, this happens a lot of times in a religious movement, there's a power struggle. You have different people that want to be the leader of the movement. Well, there is a power struggle. And, you know, many people don't know this, but there are actually hundreds of sex that uh, have come out of this, depending on wow. kind of how they trace the prophet. Um, the main one, as as most of us are familiar with, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, they they say that the next prophet was uh, Brigham Young. Brigham Young was uh, definitely in the the church leadership uh, under Joseph Smith, and so the largest really group. Uh, continued with Brigham Young, and in light of the opposition, in light of the the challenges they were facing, they wind up heading out west. Uh, There was another group, though, that looked to Joseph Smith's son, uh, and they were known as, they became eventually known as the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, Now they're known as the Community of Christ. Those tend to be the two biggest uh, groups that exist, even though the, the LDS Church is by far the biggest uh, of the groups now. But I'm just saying that you know there were a number of splits. But but essentially, you know the the one the, the one the Mormon Church that most people are familiar with, they follow Brigham Young out west. And if you remember, and again we're talking here in the 1800s, you know the the United States of America did not exist from coast to coast. <laughs> Right, uh, the states ended, and then basically you have the wild frontier out west. So what the Mormons eventually do is they say we're leaving. 
You know, we're 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 leaving the safety of 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 and and the the challenges of living in the states, and we're going off. So they they travel out west and into the frontier. Uh, and and many Mormons will recount many of the dangers and the challenges and the lost lives of of this wagon trail that essentially goes out west, uh, led by again by Brigham Young, until they reach the eventually reach the Salt Lake Valley in what we now know as the state of Utah, but back then it was, you know, um, again, frontier country. And Brigham Young stops and says, this is, this, is, this is the land. This is where we need to begin. And uh, that's why um, Mormonism really found its base and, and flourished there. And in many ways they were left alone to develop as a community and as a religion. And, and why to this day, obviously, uh, many, many Mormons uh, are located there in the state of Utah. Uh, so right. so you have that all happening under Brigham Young. Uh, now, I mean, I, I don't know how far you want me to go in the history here, um, you know, because over time, you know, things continue to change. But uh, at, at that point, I mean, in a sense, they were operating almost as a theocracy. Uh, Brigham Young was the prophet, and he was the leader of the community. There was, again, there was no government. They weren't a part, uh, a formal part of the United States of America, and that led to issues later when they wanted to join the Union as a state. Um, but, but, and, and so I mean, I could talk to him about okay. that. But, but basically, you have this, con- you know, this continuing movement growing there out west, uh, in, right. in that region of the country. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's look at some of the some of the doctrine, I guess, some of the some of the doctrinal differences. Um, maybe you mm-hmm. can kind of. We got about an hour hour left. Walk us through maybe um, uh, a conversation that's going to happen between uh, the Mormon missionary and the person who uh, is on the other side of the door. Maybe we could go from there into kind of well, some of the beliefs and in, in their books and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I admit I don't have before me uh, the Mormon missionaries you see at the door. Um, you know, they're they're going to have a pre-planned out almost script. Uh, you okay. know that they're going to generally walk through. And uh, I, I mean, I can I do have a copy of that, um, but I, I admit I don't have it. <laughs> you know, easily accessible to go through. Uh, and and actually, I I'm not sure that's the most fruitful way to begin a discussion of uh, the belief, simply because they're obviously going to begin. Uh, establishing some commonality and, and moving into uh, some of their more distinctive beliefs uh, later. Okay. You know, in 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 my mind, what what I tend to like to do is to develop um, the worldview story uh, of Mormonism. Okay. Uh, so sure. you know, really beginning with you know what 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 is. If, if you ask a Mormon, you know, where do we come from? Why are we here? Where are we? You know, those kind of basic worldview questions. Uh, and, and you really start to see how different it is from uh, what we have come to believe, that, you know, the Bible reveals uh, to us. And really, I, I, this is a quote that's often given, but there's a reason it's often given. It's because it's pretty clear. Uh, the One of the... Uh, LDS president of the church, Lorenzo Snow, uh, came up with a couplet, a well-known couplet in 1840. And it really, to me, summarizes the worldview. 
uh, he said, as man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. Now, there's all kinds of theology and doctrine that need to be explained in that statement. But right. but let's let's take let's take a step back and realize that we have to begin according to Mormonism. What we begin with, in a sense, is the law of eternal progression. Uh, that what we have is there is a law of eternal progression where you begin in in a state like we are now, and you progress to a state of exaltation or godhood. And so there is a um, physical man, uh, Elohim, who becomes heavenly father. Okay? So okay. He's a, he, he has a body of flesh and bones, uh, and he becomes heavenly father. So He's heavenly father. He's married to a heavenly mother. And they have spiritual children. Those spiritual children are essentially you and I. Uh, and, okay. and, you know, every, everybody else. Okay? So there's, there's what they call a pre-existence. If heavenly father, heavenly mother creating spiritual offspring, well, you have the firstborn son, and what do you think his name is? I'm going to go with Jesus. Jesus Christ, exactly. Well, then there's another son who's born, and he's Lucifer. Right. And you, and again, but you have all of these spirit children born to Heavenly Father. And there's there's really a, a council uh, that that comes up here, and actually. Um, I, I, I like to read, you can probably tell by now, I like to, to read from Mormons themselves. Right. Uh, because, you know, I'm not going to be accused of, you know, being an anti-Mormon and just saying what, um, you know, of being critical. So there's actually a book that came out uh, written by one of the current uh, church leaders called M. Russell Ballard called Our Search for Happiness. Now, this is not official doctrine. This is not Mormon scripture um, or anything else. But what I like about this book is you have uh, a church leader who is actually writing a book for, for non-Mormons to understand the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Okay? okay? So, again, it's not official. I'm not claiming it's scripture. But I think it's helpful, especially for for non-Mormons to understand what the church teaches. And so this is what Ballard writes in this book. And it's, it's a longer quote, but, but hopefully I, I think it'll uh, be helpful. Ballard writes, This plan originated long before any of us were born. Before the world was created, we all lived as the spirit children of our Heavenly Father. Through a natural process of inheritance, we received in embryo the traits and attributes of our Heavenly Father. We are his spirit children. Some of what our eternal father is, we have inherited. What he has become, we may become. And he continues, life in our heavenly father's home was a little different from life on earth as we weren't subject to the frailties and challenges of mortality. But we were still very much involved with learning and growing, maturing and developing, 
and we had meaningful association with one another. We had the opportunity in our premortal existence to make decisions and choices, and some of us proved to be better at that than others. Uh, and so he continues on. Our heavenly parents' love and concern for us continues to this very moment. In our wonderful pre-earth home, we had the opportunity to learn many eternal truths. Our Heavenly Father wanted us to develop every godly quality, for he knew that although each is unique, we all have within us the seeds of godhood. Indeed, we yearn to be like him. But he understood that we could only progress to a certain point without the wisdom of experience through mortality, including the trials and temptations that come to all of us as a direct result of our physical bodies. Therefore, our Father's plan was created to help us reach our full potential. It would be difficult and sometimes painful for him, perhaps, as well as for us, but he knew it was the only way his children would continue to grow and improve. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm going to continue here with the story, but again, I think Ballard summarizes well. He says, so our father called all of his spirit children together to explain his plan. He told us that he had created a world for us where we would gain experience and be tested in a wide variety of ways. Part of that test included complete forgetfulness of our heavenly home. And I add here, because why would it be, you know, how would it be a test if, if we remember all of this, right? <laughs> so, right. continuing. This would be necessary so that we could make real choices between right and wrong without being swayed by our memories of what it was like to live with God. And he goes on, but he promised not to leave us entirely alone. The Holy Ghost, he said, would help us make good choices if we listened to its gently promptings. He would also reveal to his will his will to his prophets and inspire the creation of scriptures to guide and direct us. Even with all of that, however, Heavenly Father knew we would fall short of perfection from time to time. So he promised that a Savior would be provided to atone for our bad decisions and choices and make it possible for all of us to eventually become clean and pure enough to return and live with him. But the choice would always be ours. As much as he wanted us to return to live with him, he could not and would not force his will upon us. The plan had at its very foundation in the principle of moral agency, which could be exercised for good or ill. That meant God was leaving it up to us to determine whether or not we would return to his eternal home through his son, Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, some of our spirit brothers and sisters didn't like God's plan. One of them, Lucifer, was especially displeased, and he rebelled against it. He proposed that the plan be altered so that the obedience to God would not be optional, nor would there be any right for us to choose. All mortals would be forced to do good, which meant that none would be lost. But there was a catch to Lucifer's deceitful suggestion. In return for his impossible promise to save all of humanity, he demanded that all the honor and glory go to him, not the Father. Jesus, God's firstborn and the wisest and greatest of Heavenly Father's spirit children, knew that only the Father could be so honored. He volunteered to assume the most critical role in his Father's plan, with all of the glory going to God. Jesus said he would come to earth to provide the example of a perfect life, and then he would willingly suffer the burden and pains of our sins so that the rest of us could return to our heavenly home if we choose to do so. According to Heavenly Father's plan, it was absolutely critical that each individual be free to choose. In fact, that freedom even extended into our premortal existence. All of Heavenly Father's spirit children had the privilege of choosing between the two plans presented. Unhappily, 
One-third of the host of heaven chose to follow Lucifer. In so doing, they chose to deny themselves the benefits and blessings of mortality, which means they ultimately expelled themselves from God's presence forever. But the rest of us, all who have been born on this earth, chose to align ourselves with our loving Heavenly Father and his, his eternal Son, Jesus Christ. I'm almost done here, I promise. <laughs> oh, you're fine. You're fine. And uh, he goes on to say, We must remember that there has been opposition from the beginning of time, that there are two opposing forces operating in the world today, the forces of God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, and those of Satan who is cast out of the presence of the Father for rebellion. Satan and his hosts are committed to but one thing, the destruction and deception of God's children. They will use any device and any means. They will employ any tactic to destroy faith and righteousness in men and women here on earth. Unfortunately, Satan's attack is working all too well. We see evidence every day of the effects of dishonesty, greed, despotism, cruelty, violence, and unabashed mortality. There is a positive side to this story, however. In the battle fought in the pre-mortal world over the principle of agency, the forces of Jesus Christ were triumphant, and he and our Heavenly Father entered into covenant with us to do all that was necessary to make it possible for us to one day return to live with them. If we so choose, we need not be alone here. So now there's a lot there, right? <laughs> right. At the end of, at, the end of uh, at least what, I, what I'll read from Ballard there. But uh, I hope just even in that extended quote from Ballard, uh, you and, and the other listeners see uh, the different worldview here. Uh, you have, uh, you know, a physical, a man of flesh and bones, uh, an exalted man of flesh and bones, a heavenly father who is married to heavenly mother and spiritually has children. These children uh, are in this kind of... Uh, in a, in a situation where there is uh, plans being argued about, about how we can become like our Heavenly Father. And so, what, but because of Jesus and because of Heavenly Father, we are given this life essentially as a test to see whether or not we will be um, faithful to the eternal law of progression so that we can ultimately become like our Heavenly Father, exalted and, and reach Godhood, uh, as any father would want his child to do. And so, the, so you know, God, here God is different, right? <laughs> the doctrine of God is different. The God of Christ is different. The gospel is different. Right. Salvation is different. I mean, you know, take just about any category of theology, and it's radically different. Uh, many, many... Uh, Evangelicals and others today will say, really, Mormons will use will use the same vocabulary, but using a different dictionary. And I think that's very helpful to understand. Uh, a Mormon could say, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, so that I am saved through His sacrifice. A Mormon could say that, and you'd listen to that, and you I would go. Well, that sounds like they believe in the gospel to me. <laughs> right. Right? It does. But that's but you see the meanings they give those words. The the God yeah. the, and the Christ they're referring to are different. The salvation they're right. talking about is different. The the grace they're talking about is different and 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 all of these concepts they're redefined and 
explained in a in a radically different way uh, in Mormonism. And so we have to be really careful uh, as as one uh, Mark Cares in his book uh, Speaking the Truth and Love to Mormons argues. We have to learn to speak Mormonese. You know, we we need I... to recognize the the, the different different use of language. Uh, here and it's really critical to understand. Yeah, same same terms, but kind of importing different meanings into the terms. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And and so um, for them, uh, full salvation, eternal life, is exaltation, becoming uh, gods ourselves, and and that's why. Um, <laughs> they have such a strong emphasis on families. They'll say families are forever. Now, do you see why? What, why, do, why do we want to have children, a lot of children? Because they are a sense of vehicle through which uh, our spiritual brothers and sisters can be tested like we are. You know, so that's why often Mormons will have larger families or be very strong about having a lot of children. Uh, why I grew up knowing uh, Mormon families having 10 or 12 children. You know, um, why when when we get married, you know, when I when I married my wife, eventually uh, we said, you know, till death do we part. But in Mormonism, that is it is not till death do you part. Matter of fact, if you're married in the temple, as my parents were, you're sealed for time and all eternity. Why is that? Well, if you're exalted, it's because in it's because likely you will be continuing what your heavenly father has done. You will be exalted. You, you know, you in a sense could be a heavenly father and your wife could be a heavenly mother. And you, you see how the cycle continues. Sure. Uh, so, so there's a lot of theology and beliefs that undergird um, Mormon practices. And a lot of people, they look at Mormons and they say, wow, look, they love families. They're you know that they they pay a lot of attention to families and and that's true but there's a lot of doctrinal teaching that lies underneath uh a lot of their beliefs and practice or their practices there let me go ahead and uh for people who are wanting to call in if you have any questions for for John number is 760-542-3907 760-542 uh, John, one of the things I noticed as you were kind of reading that story was uh, you don't see anything really in Scripture resembling that. So are Mormons, uh, where, where are they getting their information from? Mm-hmm. Now, well, now to be fair, actually, I skimmed over, uh, there were a number of Scriptural references in Ballard, uh, and some of them do come from the Bible. Now, okay. Um, <laughs> obviously, I would argue that the they're distorting the scriptures to teach what what they think it teaches. Um, but but I do want to be fair to Latter Day Saints and recognize they do use scripture. But I think that is a key because according to the Eighth Article of Faith, they have a summary of their beliefs called the Article of Faith that's included in uh, their scripture actually. Um, and the Eighth Article of Faith states, "We believe the Bible to be the Word of God." But listen to these critical verses. All right, these critical words, as far as it is translated correctly. We also mm. believe the Book of Mormon to be the Word of God. So, Mormons consider the Bible a scripture, but the Bible has been corrupted over time. 
So what we see in the Book of Mormon, for example, in 1 Nephi uh, 13.28, uh, we see, wherefore thou seest that after the book hath gone through the hands of the great and abominable church, that there are many plain and precious things taken away from the book, which is the book of the Lamb of God. And so Mormons say, look, the Bible is, is, is scripture, but many plain and precious truths have been lost. The Bible's been corrupted. Changes have been made. Uh, so we can't rely on it uh, alone uh, for scripture. It's not sufficient. Uh, and, and so there are many errors. There are problems with the Bible. And so there are other written scriptures that are seen as more accurate. Uh, so you have, obviously, the Book of Mormon, which claims to be a history of, uh, of the Hebrew people that have, again, migrated over to the Americas. They developed into the Nephites and the Lamanites. And, and uh, you have those uh, those stories throughout the Book of Mormon. Uh, but you also have uh, the Doctrine and Covenants, which are considered written scriptures. You have the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, the Doctrine and Covenants, they say, is a collection of divine revelations and inspired declarations given for the establishment and regulation of the kingdom of God on the earth in these last days. Uh, so, uh, really, what we see is, you see, it's, um, the, the, the analogy I, I like to use is this. For um, Christians like you and I, we see the Bible as a completed volume. We see God's revelation, written revelation, as a completed volume. It has a beginning and an end, and it's sufficient. So it's, it's right. kind of like if I want to read uh, Pilgrim's Progress. right? The story has a beginning and an end. I begin the book on page one. Uh, it's the story is finished uh, on the final page. But for Mormons, I would say Scripture is conceived of more like um, law books. They're always subject to further revision, to new revelation, to new additions. There, there's, no, there's not a concept in Mormonism of a closed canon of completed sufficient scripture. So the prophets today give new revelation. They give new scripture. And so that's why we have the, the Doctrine and Covenants. They are, it's new scripture revealed to the founding prophet, the founding prophet largely, um, of divine truth. And that's considered scripture. And even to this day, a prophet could, uh, the living Mormon prophet living today, okay, could get up, and give new revelation to the church. And that is scripture. I mean, you could staple it into the, into the scriptures if, it, if they don't add it. Okay? Uh, so you have the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, and then you have the Pearl of Great Price. And the Pearl of Great Price, as they say, is a selection of choice materials touching many significant aspects of the faith and doctrine of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They were produced by Joseph Smith and published in the church periodicals of his day. So you, in there, you have various texts and translations. You have Joseph Smith's official history, and you have the Articles of Faith. So as far as the written scripture, you have the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. You have the four, sometimes called the Quad. But like I said, that's not it. There's not only written scripture in a sense there is living scripture, or there are a prophet today who gives contemporary revelation from God. 
So in essence, Scripture continues today when a prophet speaks. Uh, the Doctrine and Covenants itself in 20, uh, 21, 4, and 5 says, Wherefore, meaning the church, thou shalt give heed unto all his words and commandments which he, and he is the prophet there, shall give unto you as he receiveth them, walking in all holiness before me. For his word you shall receive as if from my own mouth in all patience and faith. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I could go on quoting people, but you have a Joseph Fielding Smith, for example, uh, who is a later Mormon uh, prophet saying, Next unto God and Christ, on the earth is placed one unto whom the keys of power and the authority of the holy priesthood are conferred, and unto whom the right of presidency is given. He is God's mouthpiece to his people in all things pertaining to the building up of Zion and to the spiritual and temporal salvation of the people. He is as God's vice regent, and I do not hesitate to announce this truth, for it is his word, and therefore it is true. So essentially, in our understanding, Scripture for Latter-day Saints is never complete. Okay. God is always revealing himself. Okay. And and, and so that's, you know, and, and I mean, Mormons will use that in a sense as a selling point. They'll say, look, you all you've got is a book that's, you know, 2,000 plus years old. Don't, don't you think God would want to speak to his people today? Yeah. Now, of, of course, we have a response to that. <laughs> Our response is God does speak to us today through his word, the Bible, right? But but nevertheless, that's their view. Um, and, and, and think in terms of a priority, okay? I, I can't speak for any other Mormons than really myself growing up in the faith and Mormons I knew, but practically speaking, what's going to be most important for a Mormon in terms of the, the revelation of God? For me growing up and for others I knew, it was hearing the living words of the prophet. Right? Right, absolutely. So I didn't spend a lot of time in the scriptures. Now, we were, we were, all, we were called to read the scriptures, and we would read the scriptures, okay, the written scriptures. Um, but if we were going to f- focus on the scriptures, we'd be reading the, you know, the Book of Mormon or Doctrine and Covenants. Now, would we read the Bible? Sure. But what's the least trustworthy of all of them? Yeah, right. The Bible. So if I'm going to read the Bible, it's got to be through the lens of the other written revelation and the teachings of the prophets. You see? So uh, that so practically speaking, Mormons do, well, Mormons do not deny the Bible is Scripture. But practically speaking, it is not a focus of their study or of their faith, generally speaking. Uh, it tends to be cherry-picked for verses that uh, relate to Mormon teaching. At least that would be my, my assessment. Uh, and, and, so, and that's because, again, many plain and precious truths are lost. It's been corrupted. And so generally it's just not considered that trustworthy. Okay. Maybe we could, we could spend a, uh, a few minutes also looking at, the I guess, the different conception of God in Mormonism compared to the, the God of uh, the Bible. What are what are some of the main uh, differences that we see right off the bat? Well, <laughs> uh, I, I think you know uh, the Ballard quote I had earlier pretty much revealed it. And actually, remember in, in the in the first vision, what did Joseph Smith claim to see? There are two personages 
Right. Right? There is uh, God the Father and there is Jesus Christ. And they're two personages. A God the Father has a physical body, a body of flesh and bones. Uh, so, for example, in the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, there um, in uh, 130.22, uh, the Doctrine and Covenants says, The Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, the Son also. But the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. Were it not so, the Holy Ghost could not dwell in us. So God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost are all physical beings, and two of them, God the Father and Jesus Christ, have bodies. So they deny clearly uh, the teaching of the Trinity. They believe the Trinity is, is a distortion of uh, revealed truth, uh, it was, you know, through Nicaea and others, it was a result of the corruption, the falling away of the church, the apostatizing of the church from the, the true gospel. And and so, their, you know, their understanding so is, is God is three personages, three beings who are united together in purpose. Now, obviously that's different than our understanding. Our understanding is God is spirit, uh, as, as Jesus says in John 4:24, and he's incorporeal. He he does not have a body. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere, existent, present. Uh, and, and and this one eternal God, who has always been God, he didn't become God, but he has always been God. He eternally exists as three persons the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there is one being who is God. This God, one God exists as three persons eternally, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, uh, which, which we would generally call today the Holy Spirit. And these three persons are co-eternal and they're co-equal. They're all equally God. And, and so we believe God is a triune being and and they they deny this they they see a very different conception and and have a very different doctrine of uh, who God is and in a sense we can become gods right right so right. so some people argue well it's it's a form of tritheism but others argue it's a form of polytheism because we are of the same species as God. We, we haven't reached the same place. We, we're not exalted, but, you know, we're the same species. So, so in a sense, it, 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 could, it could be a form of polytheism, uh, depending on how you look at it. Yeah, I was, I was actually watching a, a debate today, actually, uh, one that took place a while back uh, between Dr. James White and Dr. Martin Tanner on Actually, the topic of can man become gods, and uh, mm -hmm. but, uh, for those who want to watch it, but uh, so one of the objections that Dr. Tanner brought up was, well, uh, Jesus was a man and Jesus was a god, so uh, what's the problem with having you know men that are gods? Mm. <laughs> uh, you know, it's going to come up. So I, I figure we better tackle yeah. that because I know. Wow. I know that's, people are thinking yeah well it, 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 again 
let's take a step back. Remember, we're using same words but different definitions. What do we mean by God? You know, God is uh, the eternal, sovereign, uh, you know, creator of the universe. And so everything else he has created. And, and so many theologians refer to the creator-creature distinction, right? There's always a, a distinction or a division uh, uh, made between the one true creator God and, and everything else uh, and, all, and everybody else whom he has created. So, um, so when we look at Christ, you have this one God, he's eternally existing as three persons, and the second person, the Son, becomes man in the, in the miracle and the mystery of the incarnation. He doesn't cease to be God, uh, but he does become man. And, and again, without getting too much into the doctrine and theology, it's often called the hypostatic union, the union of two natures in one. Uh, he's fully God, he's fully man, without confusion or blending of the two natures in the one person of Jesus Christ. So, again, doctrine matters here because um, we have the, the, the second person of the Trinity, God becoming man. But he is still fully God and fully man. He adds, in a sense, the human nature through the incarnation. But what, what Mormons are referring to is completely different. This is not a sovereign, eternal, spiritual being here. This is somebody uh, physical with a body of flesh and bones, a corporeal, physical being who is God. Now, that's not what I'm referring to when I'm talking about God. And so trying to compare uh, the incarnation uh, of, of this union of the divine and human natures in the one person of Jesus Christ to their conception of a physical, corporeal being of God, really, really there's, just, there's no comparison. It's a confusion of, um, of categories. Um, but again, it, it's easy to do when you don't stop and begin with definitions. What do we mean by these words we're using, right? Um, right. And, and look, Mormons, um, they, <laughs> look, the Trinity is mysterious, right? Uh, the, the, most rational, the most rational Christian is, is not going to dare say, I understand the doctrine, or I understand the Trinity. I understand who God is in his fullness. Nobody would be so prideful. Uh, right. The Trinity is deeply mysterious, but God does reveal himself as one being eternally existing as three persons in Scripture, and this can be demonstrated. And so, but nevertheless, because of that mystery, many Mormons will come to us and go, oh, listen, how contradictory your beliefs is. You believe God is one and three. You, you believe there's one being and three beings. Or So, they see theirs as being more rational, more consistent uh, in mm -hmm. terms of their understanding of God. 
they, they yeah, you know, and, and so, yeah. What were you saying? A lot, Sorry. Of, a lot of times Christians Christians don't help <laughs> either sometimes. So exactly. They'll gladly exactly. invoke the contradiction. Exactly. And so what I try to help Mormon, you know, when I talk to Mormon, they try to bring up the Trinity, I go, no, wait a minute. What we're saying is there is one being who eternally, you know, who eternally exists as three persons. Now, when we use words like being and person, we're not talking about the same thing, right? If I go and I look out my window and I see a tree, that tree is a living being. It has existence, right? But I would never say it is personal. There is a person in that being. Mm. Right. Okay? Now, you look at... You look at uh, you look at you or I. Now we're one being, but we're also one person. So you have the tree, okay, you have one being, no person. You have a human, there's one being, there's one person. You have God, he's one being and three persons. Now there's limitations in that comparison. Uh, I don't deny that, okay? The tree is, uh, is has a, you know, a, the, the tree is physical. Our beings are physical. God is spiritual. So I, I don't want to – we're dangerous whenever we try to make comparisons or analogies. But the only reason I try to bring this up to Mormons is to help them understand when we're talking about being and we're talking about person, we're not talking about the same thing. Okay? There is one being, uh, God, who eternally exists as three persons. So – Sometimes uh, some theologians will say there's one what and three who's. The what is God, the who is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. And, and so that that's really, to me, the, you know, a, a way forward with Mormons as well when they raise the subjection. Um, you know, and, and so I think that's a really key difference there. Okay, let's do this. We're going to take a two-minute break. Uh, let me go ahead and give the number out again for those uh, who are wanting to call and maybe have a question for uh, John. The number is 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. we got about 20 minutes left, so we would love to hear from you. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. One minute apologist. If you had one minute Apologist. to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. My question to you is, are Mormons Christians? Well, if a Christian is somebody who believes certain basic doctrines, uh, actually there are 14 of them. They're found in the Apostles' uh, Creed. They're found in the Bible as the basis uh, for the gospel. You have to believe in one God, that there's three persons in one God. You have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus was a human. Man's a sinner. Jesus died for our uh, sins. You have to be justified by faith. If you line up those essential doctrines, there are about 14 of them, you'll see that Mormons deny most of them. So the question is, can you be a Christian and deny most of the fundamental Christian doctrines? And the answer is no. Uh, could you be a Buddhist and deny most of the fundamental Buddhist doctrines? Could you be a Muslim and deny uh, that uh, God is Allah and Muhammad was his prophet and that the Quran is the word of God? Obviously not. Uh, you can claim to be, but you aren't really because it doesn't correspond uh, to the facts. So 
Mormons are not uh, Christians. Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians because they all deny crucial, fundamental Christian doctrines, which makes them not Christian. People say, well, but they believe in God. Yeah, but which God? Uh, it's a finite God. It's a progression of God. It's a form of polytheism. They believe in Jesus. Yeah, but what Jesus? Uh, is Jesus the brother of Lucifer? That's what Mormons believe. Right. Uh, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. Well, can he be saved by believing in an angel? Uh, Michael the Archangel? Obviously not. So they claim to be Christian, but they don't prove to be Christian. All right, welcome back to Theology Matters. And on the line with us, we have our good friend John DeVito, and we're uh, going over the uh, Mormon uh, religion and just looking at the contrasting views with uh, the doctrine of God and uh, some other things. So uh, real quick before we get back to that part of the show, I wanted to let everybody, um, this coming um, October, uh, we're going to be spending about four shows uh, kind of detailing and going over the, the Protestant Reformation. We're not going to spend too much time necessarily on the history, uh, but we're going to be looking at uh, some of the doctrines such as uh, sola fide or faith alone. We're going to be given a, a whole two-hour defense of sola scriptura. Uh, we're going to have a one show where we just have Q&A. Uh, but on but on all of the shows, we're going to uh, have the phone lines open and uh, invite uh, Protestants, Orthodox, whoever uh, would like to call in. And uh, you know, this show is uh, it's about defending the the Christian faith, uh, but we certainly are Protestant. And uh, October being a, a special month, on uh, October 31st, Reformation Day. We're going to be spending, um, you know, uh, all of the Thursdays in October uh, going over the uh, Protestant pillars of our faith. And in uh, uh, the last, the last being a debate we did with our friend Nathan Taylor and Catholic apologist Devin Rose uh, in the script debate. That that debate got a lot of traffic. A lot of people listen uh, to that debate. So October 31st, we'll be replaying that debate, and then the other three Thursdays leading up to that, we'll be tackling different issues um, and uh, giving a defense for Protestant theology. So join us. All right, Mr. John, you're back with us? Yes. Great to be All here. All right, well, we <laughs> Yeah, I'm so glad you're here with us, man. I'm, I'm learning a, learning a ton of good stuff. So I guess good. we kind of looked a little bit about the history of Mormonism and some of their books, their views of God. Um, what about their views of mm-hmm. salvation? What's the difference yes. kind of in soteriology? Right. Well, and, and that's such a huge, um, a huge question. Um, and, and again, it plays into that larger worldview we we referred to uh, earlier, um, and 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 it also goes to explaining why we can use different words and uh, have different meanings by them, because salvation for Latter Day Saints 
can mean anything from uh, being resurrected from the dead uh, once Christ returns uh, to exaltation or becoming God, uh, having eternal life. And and so you can be saved, uh, and, and by that meaning Christ purchased your being resurrected, um, but not receive eternal life or spend eternity with uh, Heavenly Father. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and so it, it depends on what you mean, but before we get into some of those kinds of questions, actually, to me, the clearest contrast I see um, between what I'll call the Book of Mormon Gospel or the Mormon Gospel and the Biblical Gospel is found between uh, 2 Nephi 25-23 and Ephesians 2-8-9. So in the Book of Mormon, 2 Nephi 25-23, uh, we read, uh, For we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children, and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. And that last phrase is critical. It is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. So works are required for full salvation, for eternal life, according to Mormon scripture and Mormon teaching. And does that sound similar to anything we read in scripture? For by grace we are saved? Well, yes. Uh, that's what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2.8. But notice there, uh, we have, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, sometimes more response, so works have nothing to do with salvation. No. Verse 10, Ephesians 2.8-10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So what we see in the biblical gospel is a salvation that is secured through Jesus Christ, that Christ was our substitute. He lived the perfect life we could not live. He died on the cross taking all of the punishment and the wrath we deserve upon himself. He was raised on the third day showing that his substitutionary sacrifice was accepted by God the Father and ascends to heaven where he intercedes for us. And we, when we come to him by faith, we trust in what he has done for us. Uh, we, will know, we are no longer uh, judged for our sins and we are counted as having his righteousness, his perfect righteousness is ours through our union with Christ by faith. And, and so that, that, that idea of imputed righteousness, that great Reformation teaching uh, that, that uh, you, you, it sounds like you'll be dealing with in October, uh, is, is fundamental to the, the biblical gospel, to salvation. And it provides the security through which we will gain the Holy Spirit and have his power to do the works God has called us to do. So we don't do works in order to be saved. We do works because we are saved. So we do works out of love, not out of fear. Uh, we, 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 
it's 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 the fundamental difference between the gospel of Jesus, the, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, and the false gospel. Uh, I mean, that's why Paul wrote the whole book of Galatians is to contrast those gospels. Uh, and and you know, now some Mormons today are trying to nuance Second Nephi twenty five twenty three, but you could look in other places. Mor- uh, another book of Mormon passage, uh, Moroni uh, ten says, uh, Moroni 10.32 says, Yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in him and deny yourselves of all ungodliness. Now listen. And if ye shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you, that by his grace ye may be perfect in Christ. And if by the grace of God you're perfect in Christ, you can no wise deny the power of God. Do you see the conditional statement there? Right. It is, right? It is if you are living a worthy life that that the grace of Christ will be sufficient where you will have eternal life. So it is dependent, contingent on what you do. And and of course, when you have an understanding of what God reveals about our sinfulness in the Bible as he's revealed to us, we, we're left with no hope because we can't do it. The problem yeah. with with the law is not the law, but the law shows us our sin. We're we're left exposed. We don't. I don't love um, God with all my heart, uh, might, mind, strength. Uh, you know, and, and I can't. So, right. and, and so, right. do I have That's any hope? Right. And, yeah. The Mormon gospel is really not good news. It's one of those things that's, you know, if we do this and and left up to, uh, you know, me to finish it, that, that's not good news, is it? It's not good news, and it either leads to pride, um, where they'll say, I can do it, foolishly, thinking they can do it. Uh, and many Mormons I've met are honestly in that camp. I can do it. I'm going to... I'm going to do the hard work that God's called me to do, and I'm going to make it. Okay, so it either leads to pride, or it leads to despair. I can't do it. And you have a lot of Mormons out there with this heavy burden who have never been told that Christ has taken that burden, you know, off of those who trust in what he has done for them. So uh, as as one uh, friend of mine has, has called... Uh, he, he calls the Mormon gospel the impossible gospel. It is impossible. Uh, you, you can go through Mormon teaching and show you will have no hope of eternal life. And and that's that's basically his presentation is, according to your own beliefs, your own teaching, there's no hope for you. Now let me show you how you can still have hope in Christ. And I think that's very helpful. So, so, um, you know, it gets back to that. But again, so, so you have a different uh, gospel. But, but remember those differences in language and, or, or not uh, the, the differences in definition of the language used. Because what is eternal life for them? What is, the, what is the, you know, eternity with the Father? It is exaltation. It is uh, Godhood. Uh, and that's not what we mean by eternal life in the presence of the Father. Right? Crit- so, um, yeah, it's critical critical that we get the uh, the yeah uh, i mean you know, number, so, number of time use the same word yeah. but it's highly different meanings 
Exactly. And and um one way I think it is it's helpful to understand so uh it, it's to understand so we let's say um we die, right? We we die before Christ has come back. Um and uh what happens? Let's say um a person dies, they've never heard the LDS gospel. Um you know what happens. Well, in Mormon uh, teaching, after this life, there's another world called the spirit world. And in the spirit world, in a sense, you're given a second chance to accept the um, gospel of Mormonism, to, to follow the eternal law of progression. Um, and, but notice, but what's the problem there? In the spirit world, we haven't been reunited with our bodies yet. We haven't been resurrected. So how can we be baptized? That's a requirement to to achieve eternal life. Well, that's why there's baptism for the dead in the temples here. You have people baptized uh-huh. for the dead by proxy in the temples so that if they're in the spirit world, and they want to follow the eternal law of progression, they can without a body. You see? So you have the spirit world, but eventually you have the final ju- you have the resurrection, you have the final judgment, and in the final judgment there are three kingdoms. After the final judgment, you can go to the celestial kingdom, and the highest level of the celestial kingdom is where you receive exaltation, you know, you, you receive godhood, you have eternal life. Okay, so the celestial kingdom is the top, and that's for those who have been worthy and are are, are faithful uh, through uh, t- to God the Father, you know, uh, with with the grace of Christ. Now, the middle kingdom is called the terrestrial kingdom, and that's generally for people who have lived a moral and upright life, but uh, you know, they have they haven't done as much. They may or may not have been members of the church, um, you know, but there you, you're in the presence of uh, Christ, but not necessarily the Father, okay? Uh, and then got the got lowest about, level, go ahead. Got, got about uh, got about two minutes left, John. Oh, wow. And then, then the lowest kingdom is the telestial kingdom. Uh, and again, all of, the, all of those kingdoms, since we have so little time, are uh, considered uh, heaven. Or salvation, you see. Uh, so we have to be very careful in using these terms. And um, well, I'm running out of time, so I don't know what else you'd like to cover. But uh, but you know, I, I well, welcome. Well, if it. you want to take uh, take take a minute or so and wrap up, if you like, any any loose ends you, you want to tie up and tell us about uh, those maybe who who interested in your ministry, where they can find you. And... Well, sure. Uh, and, and, you know, really quickly, again, I'm the administrator of the Midwest Center for Theological Studies. Our website is mctsowensboro.org. And, again, that's all in word, mctsowensboro.org. And um, so I, I welcome anybody. Now, obviously, my main ministry is for the, the school as an administrator, so I I, I do occasionally blog on Mormonism uh, there at the site, but that's not really my main, um, you know, goal there. Uh, it, it's really to to help out in the assistance of ministers. 
Um, but but I, I think if if I'm going to, you know, um, close that, that we we need to get back to uh, the heart of of uh, Mormonism and and the need that that there is for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and and that is so desperately uh, that they need Christ. You know, he, I think of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a Jew and uh, saved by grace in Jesus Christ. And he writes in Romans 10 some beautiful words uh, about those uh, who he uh, was related to, the, of, of the, the you know religion he, in a sense, came out of. And he says, and, and I identify with this. I'm a former Mormon. I still have a heart. And I really, while I don't want to draw too close of a parallel between the Judaism of of, of Paul's day and, and Mormonism today, I think there's a, I think there are parallels here. So Paul's heart in Romans 10 is really my heart. When when Paul writes, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And I, I just, that's my heart. That's my heart. They, they seem to have a zeal for God, but it is not according to knowledge. They are ignorant of the righteousness of God, and they are seeking to establish their own. And in doing so, they're not submitting God's righteousness. So I plead with my brothers and sisters in Christ to reach out to them in love with the true gospel that will give them the righteousness they need to join with us in an eternity with God through Jesus Christ and what he's done. All right, John, I appreciate it. We are out of time, and uh, we will have you back on again, my friend. Amen. I look forward to it. All right. Shelby podcasted for those who want to hear it and and, – Share it. We would appreciate it. So until next week, God bless. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The word justified means that you and I stand before God acceptable, spotless, pure, and without sin. That God looks at us and says, there is no sin in that man. There is no sin in that woman. That he looks at us and we are now just in his sight. So all the blasphemy that we've done by choosing stuff over God, all the blasphemy that we've lived in by saying my way is better than God's, all the blatant sin of saying creation is better than God's is removed and God sees us as just. Much more than having now been justified by His blood. This is great news. Nothing about your effort in that text at all. Nothing about your might, your religious stamina, your morality, your cleaning yourself up. You have been justified by an act of God. Bottom line, you have not earned right standing in front of God 
despite your efforts or your cleaning up of your life. We have been made pure, standing blameless in front of God, not because of any kind of religious or moral pursuit, but because Christ died. And in His death, He absorbed all of God's wrath for you and I. And that's why the Bible says that for the children of God, we are not appointed to suffer wrath. Because the wrath bestowed upon you and I was absorbed by Christ's death. 